are in the middle of chapter 4 in our study of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter that is written to persecuted saints. It seems that most of them are Jewish saints, but of course it applies to saints generally. And uh, as we've been going through this, I think that it is the kind of epistle that uh, it's timely for today. It's good to be reminded that persecution of the saints happens throughout the world and may increase in uh, in its severity here in the U.S. as well. And so it's good to know how we are to act, how we are to be, what God says to those that are going through struggles and difficulty. And I think that, you know, one of the most important things And one of the most practical things, when we are confused or when we just can't see our way out of a certain situation or when things loom over us so tall and so difficult that it's really hard to face, is to get the right perspective. To get the right perspective. In other words, to ask ourselves the question, how am I looking at this difficulty at this suffering, at this trial that I'm going through? What perspective do I have? Do I have the perspective that God wants me to have? And oftentimes, the answer to that question is that, no, I don't have the right perspective. I have the same perspective as everybody else. My perspective is, oh dear, look what trouble I'm in. Look at what I'm going through. Look how tired and stressed out I am. Look at this as if I needed this particular thing, this particular trial right now. This is the last thing I need. Or if, you know, you're undergoing some trial or some suffering because of your Christian faith. The unfairness of it, the injustice of it, When's it going to end? These kinds of questions come up. And the problem is with all of these kinds of questions, all of these complaints, is that if we have the wrong perspective, the answers aren't very encouraging. The answers actually are, well, I hope that things will change. I hope that things will get better. And that's just like the world. That's their view too. But that, for the Christian, is actually the wrong point of view to have. It's always, by the way, the wrong point of view to have. Not just when you're going through difficulty, but every day. In our day-to-day lives, it is essential that we take the Lord's perspective on things. How would Christ view this if he was going through this situation? How do the best saints, the greatest saints, how how is their perspective when going through these kinds of trials? And so that's what this sermon addresses in these verses, verses 7 through 11 of 1 Peter 4. There are three things individually that I've picked out 
of these passages. First of all, in verse 7, the need for sobriety. Then from verses 8 to 10, love. And then verse 11, in the way that we speak. Because the way that we speak comes from the way that we think. So let's have a look at these more. Verse 7 tells us that the end of all things is at hand. Well, hold on, that was written 2,000 years ago, and the end of all things hasn't happened yet. So is Peter off with his dating here? Is he a bit amiss? Is he a false prophet, maybe, because uh, he's predicted something that actually didn't come to pass? What's the meaning of this? Well, what this actually entails is quite simple. It's the fact that Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And then Jesus rose victoriously from the dead. And the church, not long after, was formed with the descent of the Holy Spirit. So that part of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the ministry of God was completed and something began. What began was, as it were, the second phase and the last half, therefore, of the work of Jesus and of the plan of God. The only thing that we're waiting for is the return of Jesus. That's the last part that he has to play. And of course, with the return of Jesus, either in the air, for those of us that believe in the pre-tribulational taking out of the church in the air, and then finally, at the end of the tribulation, him coming in power to set up his reign upon earth, that is the last installment The hard work, as it were, which involved the suffering and death of the Son of God, has been done. And so in that sense, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus could come at any time. The rapture could happen at any time. And that's what the meaning is there. In that, in view of that, he says, be serious or sober-minded and watchful in your prayers. So that our prayers are not to be prayers that are just kind of hurried and uh, spewing out anything that comes to mind or that even doesn't get to our minds. It's just the spewing out of our emotions. There are, of course, times when we're in such difficulty and such uh, trial that any prayer, any going to God uh, will do. But for most of us, we can think about what we're going to pray about. We can give some thought to it. We have to think soberly about it. Now, here's an example of not thinking soberly about things, and it particularly helps us 
in the midst of a book like First Peter. When a person says, why am I going through this trial? Why am I going through this difficulty? Why is life so difficult? Doesn't God promise me that things will get better and better? What is it about me that's stopping the blessing of God coming upon me? Because there are ministries, unfortunately, that say that God's plan for you is always a wonderful experience for you. And if you're not having that blessing and that experience from God, the problem's you. And if you're defeated, and if you're not enjoying life, if things, you're getting crushed by things, that's your fault. That's not what God wants. That's you. You're getting in the way of the blessing. I can assure you that ministries such as that do not preach from First Peter. Because First Peter is addressed to people who are undergoing persecution and suffering. And as we'll see next week, I'll just uh, give you a a little insight uh, here. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange, strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Well, what does that say? That tells us that Christians do go through difficulties. It's to be expected, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul says. And of course, Peter has told us in verse 1, Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. A mind that has been supplied with the kind of thought, the kind of outlook that understands that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. So we're to be sober, and to be sober means to to just face the fact that we're going to have trouble. We're going to meet difficulty. We're going to experience things that we can't account for. We don't have... You know, we can't identify and and say, oh, this is because of our Christian faith necessary, or this is because we did something wrong here. Sometimes we can do that. Other times, just things happen in a cursed world. So we have to think soberly about things. This is a fallen world. I am a fallen person. Yes, I've been regenerated. Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm a child of God and I'm in Christ and I have a blessed hope and all of that is true of me, but I still struggle in this jar of clay. I need to have a sober outlook on things. You have, you struggle in this area, that area, at home, at work, even at church sometimes. And you can have a perspective that says, why is this happening to me? This isn't fair. And you complain to God. Or maybe you stop talking to God. Or you can have the right perspective. 
you can say, well, these things are to be expected in this world. This is not, I mean, you may have to go through this for a, a, a period of time, but you can remember times when this wasn't happening to you. And so you can envisage a time when at some point this is not going to happen to you in the future. You can definitely envisage a time when it won't happen to you, when no trouble, no suffering, no anxiety, no pain, no suffering at all will meet you, and that is when you're finally with Christ. So Peter says, be sober and be watchful in your prayers. You know, this idea of sobriety, and the idea really is, uh, you know, the, the opposite of sobriety is drunkenness. And it's not necessarily literal drunkenness that he's talking about, but, but you can be drunk with your, um, you know, with success. You can be drunk with uh, the infatuation with the world. You can be drunk by your own emotions. And all of these things make you unstable in your mind. Your thinking is not logical. Your thinking is irrational. And so you can't put things together, thoughts together, in faith. Do you see? Because if you put your thinking together, why am I going through this? Well, Jesus went through this. Other saints have gone through this. I've heard many people have gone through these kinds of situations and worse. Why shouldn't I go through this? But I know that God is with me in this situation, and I know that I can call out to God in these situations. Think in faith, logically, that's sobriety. And our Christian faith should be that kind of a faith. That's definitely what you find in Jesus. It's definitely what you find in the epistles of Paul. It's certainly what you find in the Old Testament with David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and people like that. But often what we want to do is we want to put some froth on things, don't we? We want to say that um, we don't have to think. We just have to feel. But folks, that will not help you in the day of adversity. That will not help you have the right perspective. So let our prayers be thoughtful. That's the first thing. Sobriety. But there's something that's more important even than that. And that is love for one another. Brotherly love. Above all things, verse 8, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. A multitude of whose sins? What did you say? Well, is it your love for other people, because it says love one another, will cover your sins, or will it cover other people's sins? Other people's sins against you, maybe. Yes? I think that's, that's the 
the context there. By the way, there is an application. Kelsey's right. There's an application to yourself. Because if you have biblical love, if you have the love of God for the brethren, then that will rightly orient yourself to the way you think about yourself. Okay? Now, I'm not advocating this psychological babble of, you know, self-love. How can I love anyone else if I don't love myself? Okay? I don't care what to, you, you know... Loving yourself, that's the problem with the world. We do love ourselves. If we started loving God and loving others before ourselves, we wouldn't have this problem. But it is true at the same time that we can be down on ourselves too much. We can be self-critical too much. We must understand that we have a lot in and of ourselves to be critical of. If we didn't, Christ wouldn't have had to have died on the cross for us. That's how critical we can be. But we shouldn't be critical anymore because we've been forgiven by the one who actually does know what we're really like. And yet, we are beloved in Jesus Christ. And God doesn't want us to keep harping on how bad we are all the time. Certainly, if we've sinned, we need to repent, we need to confess it, and so on. We move on. But the devil wants to keep us down. The devil wants to keep us analyzing ourselves all the time and telling ourselves how bad we are. And so there is a sense that if you're rightly oriented and you have this right perspective in sobriety and love, you won't do that. Because you won't be self-focused, you'll be focused on God and others. The love that he's championing here is fervent brotherly love. If God loves that person, then you should. You and I should love that person too. And we should make sure that that love is real and that it is uh, the idea of fervency. Again, it's not frothy. It's not the same thing as frothy and excitable. It just means that it's deep. It, It runs deep. And with that kind of love, with that kind of commitment to other people, we will overlook their sins. We will, in other words, another way of putting this is that we will have grace towards one another. Because grace is born out of love. Be hospitable, he says in verse 9, to one another without grumbling. Well, here's the thing. To be hospitable is one thing. To be hospitable and don't grumble about it is another thing. But I'm afraid many Christians 
are not even hospitable, hospitable at all. They don't even go to the grumbling. They don't even get to the grumbling. They're just not hospitable. The idea of hospitality here, it does have a context, which I'll uh, explain. But just generally applying it, many Christians will not open their homes to other Christians. Or they will not. There's also, of course, you can be hospitable within the church as well. So the meet and greets and so on. Making sure if there's something, somebody new in the church, go and talk to them. Don't leave them out. Look out for them. We have had people, yes, we've had people in this church who've come to this church who have told me they don't come to the church any longer because nobody talked to them. Make sure that you're hospitable, that you have that in you, that fervent love for the saints. Do you see? Then you'll go out and you'll see, oh, there's a person over there I haven't talked to, or this person's new. You go and talk to them. But I said there was a context, and there is a context. Book of First Peter is basically written to those who are undergoing persecution. And so the idea of hospitality becomes extremely important, doesn't it? Peter is talking to people who, if you look at chapter 1, at the beginning there, these are people who are pilgrims of the dispersion. Verse 1. They've been dispersed. And they're being persecuted. And so it becomes important that they can find a meal. It becomes important they can find a Christian friend, that they can find some safety and solace somewhere, that maybe they can find a bed for the night. That's the idea that Peter is is, uh, referring to. What does it come from? Where does it spring from? Having fervent love one for another. Having grace one for another. As each one has received a gift, verse 10, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Well, it talks about gifting there. Why haven't I put it in my outline? Because this gifting is to be used out of love. That's why. God has given us different gifts. You say, well, what is that? I want, I want a really important spiritual gift. You know, I want a gift of healing somebody or prophesying or... Hasta la shandai entire bow tie. Okay? I want to have one of those gifts. As if they're any use. Okay? Look, folks... It would be great if I had the gift of healing. But if I had the gift of healing, okay, I'd spend most of my time where? At the hospital, wouldn't I? Because that's where sick people are. If you go to any hospital, you choose any hospital, any hospital, what you're not going to find, I guarantee it, is a healer going around, laying hands on people and getting well. It's not happening. Why? Because they don't have that gift. God doesn't give that gift anymore. That doesn't mean that God doesn't heal. It means that he's very thin on healers. Of course he heals. Yes, of course he heals. That's why we pray for people. 
That's why many people get well, sometimes miraculously so. We're just a bit thin on healers. Prophets. Okay? No, sorry. If a person prophesies something, what do you check him with? The Bible. Well, therefore, we might as well just stick to the Bible then. Speaking in tongues. Well, I just speak to God myself. Okay? Well, he understands English, doesn't he? Why on earth would he give you a a babbling tongue? Oh, because I feel much... Why would you feel closer to God? Speaking in gibberish rather than English. Maybe it's because your mind is not engaged. Because, uh, by the way, the tongues in the New Testament, they're languages. They're known languages. That's the Greek meaning of the term. It's always the meaning of the term. So, gifts here, it's not talking about those kind of gifts. It's talking about, hey, how about one in the context? The gift of hospitality. How's that one? Who has that one? Yeah, not sure if I got that one. Or maybe you do, but you haven't really, you know, thought about it too much. What about the gift of of just comforting, coming alongside people, cheering people up so that you're a kind of a, a cheerful person? What about praying for people? Hey, you know, these are important gifts. You can change somebody's day. You can change somebody's life by saying the right word. Yes, Well, we need to, we don't, that's more difficult to say. We do pray for her, but we also want, we don't want her to have a a long drawn out passing. So, but I'm thinking more here about, um, you know, a word fitly spoken is like an apple of gold and a pitcher of silver, yes? These are the kind of giftings I'm talking about. And you all, we all have them. Doesn't mean we all use them, but we all have them. So as, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another out of fervent love. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The grace of God is part of the gift that's been given to you and you are to be a steward of it. You say, well, how can I know what gift I have? Okay? Oh, come on. This is not, this is, this is not a, a, a difficult, uh, examination that you have to take. Okay? You don't have to write a dissertation on, you know, that which gift I've got. You should be able to know. And if not, go and ask somebody. But you should know. 
What do you feel that you can do? It may not be very spectacular. It may be humble. It probably is going to be quite humble. Okay? Jesus washed people's feet. But you have one and you can minister to it as a good steward of God. So sobriety in our outlook, which will lead to sobriety in our prayers, mindfulness in our prayers, although you've got to watch that word now, don't you? Uh, A right mind. Love for the brethren, which comes out in you looking out, out for them, showing hospitality to them, ministering to them. And then finally, speech, the way we speak. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's just another word, another name for the scriptures. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, this last one then, good speech, is so important. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What does James say about the tongue? The world of iniquity set on fire of hell. Well, not if you're speaking as the oracles of God, it isn't. If you and I are training our tongues, and of course this is connected to what's been said before, to speak in a scriptural way to people, in an obedient way to the scriptures, to other people, then that will have a big impact. Now, this is something that I am continually having to learn and relearn. So I'm not here preaching to you as somebody who has mastered this one, or any of the others, actually. But I am someone who is under this word and who proclaims it as the word of God to myself and to you. Let us try, let's try harder to speak as Scripture would have us speak. Part of this, by the way, is not speaking the first thing that comes into your head or giving worldly wisdom out, okay? Oh, I've experienced this. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I'm doing, you know, I did it through this way. But rather thinking, okay, what does the Bible say to this predicament, this situation? Often, by the way, what the Bible says about things is different than what worldly experience tells us. Not that that's always a bad thing, worldly experience, but it's not the main thing. Let us make sure that we're speaking truth, first of all, because the word of God is true. Let us make sure that when we're speaking, 
we're speaking because we ourselves have a fear of God. And the Bible, if we're paying attention to it, if we're obeying to it, is proof that we fear the one who wrote it. It's a healthy fear because then we're getting the most out of what he's saying to us. If we don't fear God, we're not really going to pay attention to what he says. And let it be a word that is going to benefit, edify the people that we're speaking to. I don't always do that. Sometimes it's because it's in self-defense, as if I needed to do that. That's putting myself first, isn't it? Sometimes uh, it's because I'm not taking time to think, okay, what is the scriptural way to answer this? And sometimes it's just because I'm just full of myself at the moment. And nothing's good good is going to come out of me because I'm in the flesh, not in the spirit. But we all have this duty to speak in a more scriptural way. You see, what is in the mind will come out of the mouth. These Three things, sobriety, love, and good speech, or scriptural speech, are bound together, obviously, aren't they? These are all traits of a mature Christian. And right now, you know, we can think, well, okay, am I a mature Christian then? Sometimes no. Sometimes yes. The last part of verse 11 in conclusion here says, If anyone ministers in these ways, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Okay, we're not digging up in our, in our own reserves. The ability that God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then there's a uh, a little uh, benediction here. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Let's be, this is a call to all of us, to me. Let's have the right perspective. To put right perspective is to put God first. Not in an abstract way, so that he's just God up there and we're kind of, you know, just worshipping him because he's God. But in a practical way, in a proper way, where, yes, he's God and he's a God that has given us gifts and he has expectations of us to represent him through Jesus Christ. He's given us the Holy Spirit and the scriptures to help us. So let's be like that. That's the idea. And when one is going through difficulty, when one is going through trial, if you're like that, you see, your perspective will be completely different than if you are just going your own way, doing your own thing, thinking like the rest 
of people think. Your perspective will be this thing that's looming in front of me. It seems big to me, but it's not big to God. And God can move that anytime he wants. And if he doesn't move it, he's going to get me through it. I don't have to figure out how he's going to get me through it. I know he will, because he's God, and he's my father. That's the right perspective. So trouble and difficulty don't um, don't fight against these things of sobriety, love, and, and good speech. They actually can be used and overcome by sobriety, love, and good speech. Because in those things, we have the perspective that God wants us to have. And we will be overcomers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray. I pray, Lord, that we would all uh, be much more aligned with what Peter says in these verses. That we would love out of um, the well of your love for us. Love other people. That we, this love, this um, fervency that we have for one another would be mixed with grace so that we're not, Lord, looking at other people's faults and their sins. But we have grace, just as you have grace towards us, Lord. And that we speak, Lord, in line with what your word has done in us and what your word means to us. Bless us, I pray. Give us a a week uh, where we can consider these things and do better in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.